Last week we started uh, a uh, series that is now going to be uh, parts A, B, and C, but uh, just uh, the, the title is Rediscovering and Restoring His Pattern. Uh, we won't review last week much, but we emphasize that there's an idea of biblical models and biblical patterns that goes through all of Scripture. Jesus made that very clear. There were, there's a couple of scriptures on the back on page two for you under Christ, our pattern, point uh, 2D, if you want to look at that. Uh, of course, the whole concept of the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple of David and the temple that Ezekiel saw and the rebuilt temple of Ezra and Nehemiah, four temples in the Old Testament that foreshadow the fifth temple, five being the number of grace, that was God's ultimate and eternal purpose was to, that the church would become the temple of his Holy Spirit and and carry his glory. And the idea of patterns start in Genesis 1 when in all sorts of ways, when every seed brings forth fruit after its kind, every plant bears forth seeds after its kind, uh, God makes a man according to his pattern and his image, and he tells man to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and uh, he, he rests on the seventh day, starting a pattern of work, rest, work, rest, uh, and uh, uh, celebrating, you know, completed work with, with rest. And then, of course, in the New Covenant, our Lord raises from the dead on the first day of the week, uh, fulfilling the Sabbath. The, the, he said, it is finished. And he rose on the first day of the week, beginning the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation, which is coming uh, into you and me and into the church. We are a new creation. All those who are in Christ Jesus are a new creation. All old, The old things have passed away. New things have come. So this idea of pattern, of course, is really, really important to the script, scriptures. Now, that's a huge problem for today because certain ideas came in that became an, very anti-intellectual and anti-church history and anti-looking at Scripture in a, in a comprehensive and systematic way that have dominated Bible-believing Christianity in the last 150 years so that most people aren't looking for a patterns. <clears throat> most, uh, most people uh, have disjointed ideas, not systematic, comprehensive, woven ideas. And what we're trying to get back to here is understand there's a biblical model and a biblical pattern for everything. Now, before we start into today's stuff, 14 biblical emphasis for rediscovery and restoration, I wanted to hit one more point that's not in your notes on the pattern. But in Luke 5, 36 through 39, Jesus says this. He told them, also told them a parable. We'll talk about the context in a minute. No one tears a piece of, uh, from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled. And the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Or some translations say good enough. Um, that's the ESV. Now, um, that last line, verse 39, is only in Luke's account. It's not in Matthew or Mark. Matthew and Mark have a, this exact same account, almost word for word, except 
that line that is very important to think about. No one after tasting old wine desires for new. They'll actually say the old is good. Now, if you know anything about wine, and I hope you do, viticulture is, is biblical culture, and I hope you enjoy in moderation uh, the fruit of God's vine and uh, so forth. But um, if you know anything about wine, the best wine is aged meticulously. It's made in the first place from the best of grapes. It's aged meticulously. Uh, there's not too much sugar. New wine has too, too much sugar, so it can ferment faster. That's how the difference between cheap wines and good wines. Uh, that's why in Acts, the only place where the word wine is not used in the book in the New Testament is in Acts 2 when they're accused of eating, of drinking glucose. It is The Greek word is something like glucose. We get our English word glucose, which we mean sugar, your, the body converting foods into sugar. But it refers to a kind of wine that's made by dumping lots of yeast and sugar and, and brought to market quick. Uh, you kids would know it as like wine coolers and Boone's Farm and Mad Dog and things like that. Little kids wine. Um, you know, so, uh, which uh, you should probably encourage your kids not to drink. Uh, they should learn to drink the old wine. But what happens is once you've tasted a certain amount of old wine, uh, new wine can also be, of course, uh, wine that's being made properly, but it's just not ready yet. It's not ready for public consumption. And what God often does is he actually takes a group of people takes a, a Moses, and he prepares him for 40 years in the wilderness. But nobody wants that thing when it's the new wine. And any movement that's kind of trying to pioneer back to biblical truths and so forth is going to make mistakes. It's going to have some immaturities. It's going to have uh, the beauty of activity and bubbling and fermenting and so forth. But most people don't want to go there. It's not usually dressed that pretty. So, um, you know, if you look at David, Samuel had anointed him king, but he went through a process that lasted many years where Saul, who God had departed from, still had the buildings, he still had the government, he still had the people, he still had all the accoutrements of Israel's religion, but God had already moved on. And David started with the dregs that nobody wanted. He started with, the, you know, David's mighty men were, if you read carefully, it's a, basically all the outcasts, all the people who didn't fit in. They are who David started with. God does that generation after generation. You look at some of the, uh, you know, there's certain uh, $4 million buildings over here in, in, in uh, Beaver Creek. A hundred years ago, those were the most radical, lower-class people who God was moving among the poor. And God always takes the downtrodden, the broken, and and the people who just don't fit in. That's why you're here, <laughs> and uh, and uh, that's why I'm here. And so, and that's who He works with. And now sometimes God has to go through a process so we can see that we actually fit in more on the Isle of Misfit toys than we actually feel fit in Santa's workshop. But uh, the truth of the matter is if God's going to use you, you're going to have to feel like you belong on the Isle of Misfit toys. 
as a starting point. So that's a pattern in itself. Now, uh, new wines uh, must be put into new wineskins. It's, you know, really why it, my wife and I uh, spent about 12 years uh, praying, seeking, uh, thinking, I don't want to go back in the ministry. I don't want to start a church again. Uh, we did try a few different outfits and so forth. And the last one, we were so well received that I had an office in the building. I had a standing offer to go on staff at any time I wanted to take enough of a pay cut, but I wouldn't have been able to keep my kids in private school, so I didn't go that direction. And I uh, taught a Sunday school class and led an adult single group. And, you know, it, we, I really liked the people. They liked us. But there was just too many things that were not really according to biblical thinking or biblical patterns. And I really, you know, I used to uh, lock up the buildings at that. That was one of the ways I served the church was to go late at night and lock up the buildings around 11 o'clock when everybody else was, uh, was uh, hi, Benjamin, come on in. Good to see you. Um, that's our good friend, Benjamin. But um, so, um, you know, as I'd walk around the buildings, I would often pray sometimes two or three hours in the sanctuary. And eventually God just began to deal with me and say, you know, the things I've entrusted to you are stewardship. That's important for you to think about. As you seek God, as you study his word and so forth, the things God opens your eyes to are a stewardship. And if you're faithful in your stewardship, God will give you more. That's one of the most important principles, really, in terms of finances. When you're faithful in your finances, your tithes and offerings, God will open up true understanding to you and true motivation. Uh, and it's, it's a blessing you want to always be a part of. But in the end, uh, you know, I, I, um, I would encourage you that it's worth investing your life somewhere where the vision is to restore all things and to be deeply biblical and willing to change anything as God changes our understanding of the scriptures. Now, that's pretty radical because the most, you know, most times we get settled into a certain way of doing this or that and that. Uh, the reason our liturgy is somewhat of an evolving thing uh, or developing thing is because we're studying. <laughs> and as God opens our eyes to this or that, we add it. Uh, don't work to change a church or a parachurch organization when you, uh, when, if you're in a place where you have significantly more understanding, you can actually get into a point where you're kind of uh, rebelling in, against the leadership and not necessarily serving Christ. I encourage you to read a book called Spiritual Authority by Watchman E if you don't understand that principle. And, uh, you know, don't don't think, well, I'm going to stay here until it changes. Now, you don't jump ship quickly. You don't uh, you don't want to be arrogant or selfishly ambitious. That's very important. Before, uh, make sure you spend a good amount of time uh, examining your own heart, letting letting people who really know you examining your heart. Make sure you're not ever making moves out of selfish ambition or out of arrogance. Make sure you're correctly in uh, commission. But study things from a biblical uh, paradigm-ish uh, type of level for hours. And by all means, uh, invest in new wine in places where there's a radical commitment to the restoration of all things, including biblical models or patterns. Um, now, that's probably too brief. We always say the, you know, the broad principles come from the pulpit. The specific things come in your prayer closet and from godly counsel and, and study of the word and so forth. So 
Old wineskins, though, as God, as God moves toward, if you understand the kingdom of God and what God is clearly saying about the restoration of his church and so forth, Ezra and Nehemiah, the glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the, of the former house, Haggai. God will raise up eventually. I don't know if it's going to take one century, five centuries, but God will raise up expressions of his church all over the world that eclipse even the New Testament church in biblical everything. And uh, he will do that for his own glory and purpose because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the water covers the seas. And I want to do whatever I can to, to un, you know, bulldoze over all the rubble and the religious confusion and get down to the foundations of Christ and in the, in the early church and the kingdom of God and these kind of things. And I want to hand that baton as well as I can to the next generation. That's why there's only a few old guys in our church. Not that we don't, we're going to do a flyer campaign, I hope, this summer and get a few more old guys. But uh, uh, on the whole, you know, I'm going to continue to invest in the university and in the inner city kids ministry and... Uh, people 30 and under. You're too old now, John Gray. No, <laughs> no I'm just kidding. Uh, he's 31. No, I'm just kidding. So uh, let's move on. So last week we ended with that. Uh, and I want to look. start today. I'm going to try to cover seven of 14. And then next week I'm going to cover the last seven. Then hopefully when we come back from the ARC conference, I'm hopefully, hoping to uh, perhaps redo the, um, the ARC presentation that I'm doing there here if because i'm assuming not enough people are going to be in, in ours and then uh, that'll be august 5th or 6th somewhere wherever it falls on a sunday in there and uh then we'll resume the kingdom of god series which uh, i'll go back to part two and start start almost from the beginning so of the 14 the first one was the word of god that has to be foundation for it foundational for us all there was an understanding in the early church that we've kind of lost about the word of God, that Jesus is the living word of God that take us to, and, and it's through the scriptures, the written word of God, that we encounter the living word of God. And both concepts are important. Um, what, what, what the biggest challenge I think about the word of God for us today is, is comprehensive integrated frameworks versus reductionist kind of theologies. And that's a huge issue. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. The word sum is so important there. It's very similar scripture to 2 Timothy 3, 16, which we all know all scripture is inspired by God. But I like the word sum because a sum is made up of putting all the parts together. And, you know, understanding the, the scriptures... Uh, there certain ideas crept in again in the last 150 years or so, especially from the 1890s to the 1920s, that kind of reduced scripture to parts. And if and the practical outworking is today, most people know parts. Very few people have studied the whole of scripture uh, on a regular basis. And that's, that's uh, problematic to say the least. With that comes, uh, um, by the way, the, the sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous ordinances is the, is the New American Standard. 
The ESV says every one of your righteous rules. King James says every way one of your righteous judgments. I want to look at about three areas of, of, out of, of the seven or eight that we're most concerned about in terms of reductionist theologies versus seeing Scripture comprehensively. Number one, the anti-supernaturalism that crept in with the Enlightenment. There's no way you can actually read Scripture accurately without taking into... In, in John 14, 12, Jesus is talking in a whole series of things he says. John 13, 14, 15, 16 is one dialogue. You know, John, the book of John is, is organized around five miracles and five discourses of Jesus. The Passover discourse of Jesus is, starts in John 13, and you could actually take it through John 17, his prayer to the high priestly father, uh, his high priestly prayer to the father, I should say, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. I would kind of look at that as all one of the discourses. Some people would separate that into two discourses. Um, but 13 through 16, Jesus is preparing to go away, and so he's teaching his, his disciples this is what it's going to look like. You are going to be Christ on the earth. It's actually to your advantage that I'm going away. Because if I don't go away, the helper won't come to you. And when the helper comes, he's going to continue all the things I've been doing. He makes quite a few statements about the helper in John 14, 15, 16. And, there's probably, and, and they're intertwined with the idea that my mission is ongoing and it's going to keep looking the same as it's looked during my lifetime. And so a Christianity that doesn't have healings, a Christianity that doesn't cast out demons, a Christianity that doesn't have prophecy is not a biblical Christianity. And you might want to run from that all you want, but God wants to, to give you that to equip you and empower you to live a holy life, to equip and, and empower you to be more effective in the service of his kingdom. And uh, that's, that is huge. So, um, uh, let's, let's keep moving on. So, um, Jesus, you know, said if I, it, Matthew 12, he says, if I uh, cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then know the kingdom of God has come upon you. Where the kingdom has come, there will always be the kinds of things you saw in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus wasn't looking for a fight when he went to the synagogue. It's just that the power of the Holy Spirit stirs up reactions. Sometimes you'll actually, if you get filled enough with the Spirit, you'll actually make people mad without even, that don't know you. <laughs> really. And that's okay. As long as we don't uh, look for it. You know, I, I, I am working hard at trying to understand the gospel has offenses in it, so we have to be as careful as possible not to be offensive uh, in our character or in our way we come across the people. However, we don't want to just abrogate the truth. Uh, layers of unbelief and layers of doubt and skepticism have, have entered Western culture, and it's costing us dearly. Frankly, the church in Europe is down to about 4% of Europeans attend church, most people estimate that 25 to 50% of those, so a total of 1% to 2% of the Europeans, are practicing Christians. And if you don't think that can happen here, the statistics are that about 4% of those under 30 go to church in America today. And that means in 20 years we will be Europe if God doesn't do something very different than what we've been doing up till now. 
Now, that's not a pleasant thing to think about, and you can get mad at the messenger if you want, but, but that's actually what we're up against. We, and we are not, you know, estimates are that anywhere from 45 to 70% of kids that grow up in Bible-believing churches are not staying Christian as adults. And it's a pretty small percentage of kids that are growing up in church to begin with. So uh, the second aspect of, the, of this thing about, you know, comprehensive integration of the whole Word of God is an understanding of continuity between the covenants. Now, that necessarily uh, touches on some things that, you know, I can, by the way, I'm only trying to be like introductory and give you a broad brush introduction and, you know, what you're going to have to read scripture, books, things like that. Uh, these are things that I, I'm just introducing the idea to you. Please develop it in your, in your walk with God. And the idea of covenantalism versus dispensationalism in uh, the late 1800s, a guy named J.N. Darby came along and introduced a, an idea called dispensationalism. It was uh, a fundamentalist reaction to modernism, but in itself was completely modern paradigm of looking at Scripture that had never been taught in church history or, or church circles before. And uh, it has a lot of Gnosticism in it a lot of dualism, Neoplatonism, and so forth, a lot of us escape from, from, from taking uh, responsibility in the world kind of mentality. Let's retreat to, to uh, behind the, the church doors and behind, and in, in, in it kind of reacted to uh, the modernists taking over Harvard and Yale and, uh, and so forth. Uh, Princeton, that if you don't study... Uh, go online or go on Piper's, John Piper's website. He does some really good stuff about the loss of Princeton University to modernism and so forth. Uh, but um, what kind of developed was this idea that there's this radical discontinuity between the covenants. And well, the fruit of it's been that almost nobody studies the old what we call the old covenant, which really should be called the Hebrew scriptures, because what we call the old covenant started in in Exodus 19. But uh, nevertheless, uh, you know that there there was this idea of this of God works different ways completely, almost as if there's a different God in different periods. So the old covenant God is less evolved. And that idea has, has, has permeated both liberal and conservative churches to extreme levels. And so um, what we need to understand is, is uh, here's, what, here's what Paul has to say in Galatians about that. In Galatians 3, 15 through 17, he says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it's a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds condition to it. Conditions to it. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham, and that was before the old covenant was given to Moses. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. He does not say, and the seeds is referring to many, but rather one. That is Christ, of course. And indeed, your, and, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Now, what you get, uh, 
one thing you have to understand is almost nobody, uh, at least mainstream, would hold to a full-blown Dar- Darby is, is the guy who brought this idea, Schofield, and the Schofield Bible popularized it. Uh, by the 1920s, it had swept the evangelical community fully, and it brought uh, other ideas like antinomianism and, and dispensational premillennialism and things like that. But almost nobody would hold to that paradigm that radically anymore. In its most radical, almost no portion of Scripture was for today. Like the Sermon on the Mount, which we refer to a lot in this church, was actually dismissed as being for the after Jesus returns, because obviously the standards are too high. It must be for the next millennium. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, that nobody would go there anymore. Nevertheless, I guess what I'm, I would want to say is that what's kind of happened, instead of taking down the structure and going to a more biblical structure, mostly we've broken down some of the more radical extremes of the structure. But you know, the whole paradigm, the whole wineskin itself needs to be reexamined. In, in this respect, Hebrews 13.20 talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. The covenant we're living in is the new covenant. It, it precedes time and space. It's always been God's final covenant. And all of the covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, etc., are are stepping stones to the full development of the eternal covenant called the New Testament that is centered in the person and ministry and, and reality of Jesus Christ. Nothing was abrogated from any of those covenants, but everything was fulfilled from all of those covenants. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. You misread the Gospels if you think that Jesus is rejecting the Old Testament over and over and over again. If you understand that Jesus is fulfilling, he said, I didn't come to negate the law or abrogate it. I came to fulfill it, which the Greek means put it into force. I came because your hearts of sin could never hope by your self-effort to do it. That was the lesson Israel was supposed to get in Exodus 19 that they didn't get. So I came to write the law on your heart and mind and soul and empower you through a new creation and the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. That's why Pentecost came on Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was outpoured on the day that Israel celebrated the giving of the law because by the power of the infusion of the Holy Spirit, you can live fulfilling the law. Not by Christ, not by your your efforts, I mean, but only by Christ and his spirit. And Jesus didn't abrogate the law. He enforced it. And the law had provisions of atonement, all of which he fulfilled in, in his one great sacrifice. That's why we don't slay bulls and rams anymore. But he didn't take any, he didn't destroy the old covenant. He fulfilled every aspect of it. And it was in the Old Testament, Abraham, like every other true saint of God in the Old Testament, was saved by faith. No one was ever saved by works. That's Jesus' point in John 8, and that's Paul's point in Romans 4, if you care to study it. They were just saved in the future events that God had promised, and he's an eternal one, 
So before Abraham was, I am, Jesus says in John 8. And it was always by faith in the I am that, that anyone was saved. It was when, the, when he said it's finished and the veil was torn in two and so forth that we had access to the fulfillment of that. But that what David was saved by faith. And he wrote, he wrote all those wonderful psalms by faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And although Saul crashed and Solomon crashed, Solomon wrote the Proverbs that he wrote by the power of the Holy Spirit in the same faith that saves you now. And there's a total continuity between the covenants. That's why every line of the New Testament borrows repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly with quotes, with biblical imagery, with fulfill, telling of stories from the Old Testament. There was never meant to be a Christianity that you didn't thoroughly know the Old Testament. And one that, that, that like that is not actually Christian. It's some sort of, uh, yes, you know, you know what? You all love me, I think. And, uh, and we all know I'm a little Abbey normal. And, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not quite right. And, and you, you still love me, I hope, and pray for me and that kind of thing. And it's a little bit like that. Like, you know what? It's not that we don't love the church, but the church without these ideas is deformed. And I, you all get, oh, please help Pastor Greg, <laughs> you know, get straightened out. No, <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> save him from his crazy ideas. Or what, you know, the, the church without the old covenant is like a, a wonderful young child who's in a wheelchair because he or she doesn't have any legs or arms. I hope to God we sacrifice for them, we love them, we serve them. We're not anti them. But if we had uh, the ability to say, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk, like they did in Acts 3 2, we'd do that, wouldn't we? Of course we would. Uh, so, my point is there's this, uh, this is very important. Thirdly, biblical imagery, which we touched on already. What started to happen in the fundamentalist modernist controversy was a throwing out of what Luther had taught about literary interpretations of the Bible in favor of an overly literal interpretation. And let's, let's understand, it's very important to understand that it's inerrant and that it's historically accurate. But not everything was meant to be interpreted literal. I hope none of you young men will ever date a bride that looks like the woman in the Song of Solomon. Because... <laughs> your teeth being like wool is not that appealing to modern art and poetry. I really love this girl. She's got woolly teeth. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a poem. And God is so powerful and so sovereign that he predestined and foreordained that he would write his poetry in the actual events of history. Read Genesis 24. Please write that down and please do it. Read Genesis 24 is a microcosm of the whole Bible. Abraham is a foreshadowing of God the Father. Isaac, a foreshadowing of God the Son. He sends his servant, a foreshadowing of God the Holy Spirit, with full of gifts, for uh, speaking of the gifts of the Spirit, 
to go to a distant land, speaking of the world, to get a bride for his son. Now that's the whole Bible in a nutshell. And he says, don't bring back someone who's not a covenant woman. Don't bring back someone from the other nations. In other, speaking of, she has to be sanctified to become one of Isaac's people. It's how I deal with this growing trend of nose rings, because, you know, the, the servant put a nose in her, a ring in her nose. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm an old guy who doesn't like nose rings, but I guess they're biblical. So, well, <laughs> uh, you can't fight City Hall. So, I'm just kidding around. But um, understand this. Like, there's this, uh, this idea crept in that when it comes to biblical imagery, unless the New Testament was specifically using a biblical image from the Old Testament, we cannot assume that there are other ones. That is a, is a hermeneutic of fear. I, I don't believe you can establish major things out of just imagery without the doctrine and teaching and all that behind them, uh, didactic stuff like Paul writes or whatever. But you miss so much if, if you don't understand the imagery in the parables of Jesus. He's fulfilling the law and the prophets in everything he says. And he's using the image of both the law and the prophets over and over and over again. When he says, I'm the vine, it's not coming out of some left field somewhere. Israel was God's vine. And Israel's called the son of God. And he's, Israel is the suffering servant. And Christ is the son of God, the suffering servant. And Israel is the vine. And Christ is the vine. And, unless, and he's the fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel, is what he's saying there. Everything you've been praying for, everything you've been hoping for, everything that my people have been longing for for 2,000 years, I am that vine. And unless you abide in me, you cannot do anything. And if you won't abide in me, you'll be taken away as a branch. It's the same kind of judgment he puts on Israel in Matthew 22 when he says, the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit. And in Matthew 23, when he looks over the temple and says, Ichabod. Now, I'm trying to teach us the whole Bible, so let's, let's move on. Yeah, gosh, this might become a series. I hope not. Secondly, kingdom gospel. All essential biblical elements versus the popular disemboweled versions. This is, this is so crucial because around 99 to 100%, somewhere in that range, of the people who walk through our doors are less than biblically converted on lots of levels. And it's robbing their life. Jesus came that they might have life and have it abundantly, but you can't have it as a rebel outside, living outside God's provision for your life on your terms. With covenants, with unbelievers and all kind of things that you that you want because it's, it's too scary to step out of the and step on the waters of God's word. And that's unfortunately where mo most Christians live. That's why our divorce rate is higher than the world. That's why our credit card rate is higher than the world. That's why the average Christian gives two to three percent of their income to the church because they we've received less than a gospel in the interest of competing with one another. 
We've watered it down and watered it down and watered it down. More gimmicks and so forth. If you come visit our church, you'll get a toaster oven. (laughs) You know what? It's more subtle than that, but sometimes it is somewhat of that uh, mentality. Um, I want to just touch on, I guess, four elements of the gospel out of, uh, there's about seven or so that, uh, you know, I've been studying this for 40 years. What are the missing elements of the gospel? I've really honed in on this one over the last seven or eight years, actually, thanks to my son, John, opening my eyes to some things on the back deck a few, few, well, probably six or seven summers ago now, but, or anyway, um, the one you're most familiar with is the Savior versus Lord debate. The, the thing that breaks my heart is that there is such a debate. You could not have read more than proof text to, to be, fall down on the Savior side of that debate. It's, it's not a matter of that they're, they're honestly held positions. Read Genesis. What he's saving you from is being your own God. He's not saving you from drinking beer, which you may need save from if you drink too much beer. Uh, he's not saving you from sleeping in too late or whatever sins you want. He is saving you from your sin, which is this nasty thing inside of us that suppresses the truth and unrighteousness that runs from God that says, I'll take some carrots and peas, but I don't want any celery. That, that approaches all of God's word by don't give me that power of the Holy Spirit stuff, but I'll take this part of it. I don't want, I, you know what? I really love studying God's word, but don't lay this community thing on me. Because I like being a radical individual, autonomous Christian. Because I can avoid growing up in so many ways that way. That was not the gospel Jesus died for. The message of the gospel is when sin entered the world, you got this thing to run from God, hide from God, so you could continue to be your own God. And he came to to lay the ax to the root of that tree. I'm going to run out of time if I don't. I'm going to run out of time anyway, but uh, I'll keep moving. (laughs) Decision versus discipleship models. This may become a small series. Uh, Now, I really love studying, especially George Whitfield's sermons. I love Finney, despite the fact that he started many of our problems. Uh, I, 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 I love all that stuff. Um, but listen, unfortunately, the altar call mentality has degenerated into the sinner's prayer, make a decision mentality. And every kid who grows up in a Bible-believing church has been saved 40, 50 times, sometimes 120, third, what, and because, frankly, sometime, somehow deep down inside themselves, they know something's not right, so they go forward at every altar call. What a place of condemnation and confusion to live in. I don't want you living there. I want to see Jesus set you free. And the bottom line is this. 
Jesus never said, go make sinners' prayers or decisions. He said, go make disciples. And a disciple has made Jesus Lord of all things and is following in his mission. Can't be a disciple if you're not fishing for men. Follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. You can't be a, a disciple, Jesus says, in many ways through the Gospels, unless you take up your cross and follow him. And what I want to, to the, the reason this, this harsh preaching is, is the most loving thing someone could do, they're old saying that hard preaching leads to soft hearts and soft preaching leads to hard hearts. The reason is this, it, if you seek to save your soul life, you will lose it. Your affection, your soul life includes your mindsets, your thinking, your paradigms, your, your uh, commitments emotionally, what you love, your sin, your favorite sins. With, from gluttony to laziness, whatever it is, from just being a know-it-all and being critical of everyone else or whatever. Jesus came to set us free from that and if we lose our life, we'll find it again in him. The difference between a proud person and a, and a humble person biblically is not that, a pro, that, that everyone, you're supposed to be a humble bumble, and I don't know if I know it. It's, it, it's, it's strength under Christ that gives glory to Christ, that leans on Christ, that can do nothing of itself. You know, you read the New Testament. They don't fit our modern models of pastor. One of the most interesting experiences I ever had, my son John was with me. I think he was 11 or so. And I ended up casting demons out of this pastor in front of, uh, and his books were for sale in the back table of this conference. It was a crazy night. I can't explain it all. But... Um, he was he was really set free that night, and he's that responded amazingly. He's got this great deliverance ministry now, different things. As far as I've understood, I haven't stayed in touch with him. But my my point is simply this: he he kind of got away. He was a very effeminate kind of guy. He needed a lot of help, but he got away with all kinds of hurts and fears and insecurities and so forth because the general Jesus, meek and mild Jesus model. What about the Jesus who chased out the money changers? There's actually a lot of Christians who think that was that one time that Jesus got in the flesh. Well, if he did, he can't die for your sins. A lot of people kind of think, wow, Jesus kind of lost it there. All right, uh, moving on. God didn't give us any... Um, read Dallas Willard. I like to find evangelicals who say this stuff. And Dallas Willard was an evangelical. Unfortunately, he died last summer. Great gift to the church. Um, one of his less known books is called The Great Omission, Reclaiming Christ's Essential Teachings About Discipleship, in which he argues, as only a bright guy like that could argue, that this idea of decisions, that, that there's no biblical authorization for that. You're either a full disciple or you're not. And I believe in the Reformation and the ancient Catholic view of the perseverance of the saints. I don't believe in the uh, let's 
slap eternal security on people who don't want to obey God so that we can say, because you prayed a sinner's prayer, even though your whole life is fighting God, you're probably, you're okay. I doubt it. And I'm not preaching works. I'm preaching real conversions. Whitfield and those guys, they didn't let you pray to receive Jesus. They actually had a thing called the conviction room. And when someone would come forward to pray, they'd say, they were men of the spirit. So they, I don't think you're ready yet. <laughs> I think you need to be more convicted first. Love to see that restored to the church. Make even longer meetings, of course, but what the heck. Um, I've never been concerned about the length of the meetings, as you can tell. Um, thirdly, the bad news versus the good news. I never hear anything about the bad news. I have now found one Christian book who says that same phrase, the bad news. That you know, there must be bad news if there's good news. The entire the entire modern culture starting with modern psychology and modern sociology, but including the presentations of Christianity uh, presented by the church in our competition, we want to avoid the offenses of the gospel. And so we just say some of the good news parts. We leave out the bad news parts because, of course, pe people will come back a second time and they'll like us better. But we haven't served them ultimately, if that's what we served them. Don't give them McDonald's when you have enough money to take them to a nice restaurant. Really. Um, the good news brings conviction. It's centered in God's attributes. It, it, it liberates you from a man-centered Christianity to wow. Or you, you begin to be wowed by who God is. Almost every person that uh, comes in our doors, what I do is kind of leave them alone for and love on them and have some conversations on friendly things until they trust me enough to hit them with, you're not deeply enough convicted about the depth of human sin. You think God got a good deal when he got you. That's, that's why all your, you have so many, uh, un, so many opinions when you haven't even studied that much and, or sought God that much or walk with God very long. And there, and this, uh, this opinionated world that you're living in is holding you back from the, from a great encounter with God that he wants to give you. And it starts by understand using the attributes of God, the 10 commandments and the teachings of the scriptures about human nature, especially sin to begin to understand my sin. Let me get, let me tell you, one of the things why I have to study and seek God and humble myself and pray is because we all have this problem and I, and uh, we need, I, I cry out to God for help every day with this problem. And that is this, it's easier to see your sin than it is to see my sin. And almost the whole church is living there. That's why Jesus was so radical when he said, don't take the little speck out of your brother's eye. When behold, you got this big log jam in your eye. And it's like this big, and it's jammed in your eye, and you're not and, and you really need to get that out before you can see clearly. And you, what you'll what you'll 
what one way you can know you're making it is because in, in Matthew 7's version, he puts it in, don't judge lest you be judged, in the standard of judgment. When you, when you begin to have people confess to you all sorts of heinous sins and you restore them in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself lest you too be tempted, then you've begun to see that you need the log out of your eye first so that you can see clearly to to be gracious while taking the speck out. We all need that message more than we could ever know. Uh, The fourth element that we've already touched on is the history of Israel. Um, There are nine presentations of the gospel in the book of Acts. Every one of them Every one of them takes a great deal of its presentation from the Old Testament scriptures, even the ones to the Gentiles. Because God has always wanted a people. This is not some small point. This is the antidote to our current crisis of radical individualism. The number one phrase in modern Christianity is personal savior. It's not in the Bible. And Paul, talking about the Lordship of Christ, he calls Jesus my Lord only one time, when he calls Jesus our Lord, with the, meaning the churches I'm talking to and in covenant with and working together with. He's our Lord together 63 times. And God didn't die on the cross just for your sins. If there was only you, he would have still died. Nonsense. <laughs> There's a grain of truth in that. I'm not, but the point was saying if there was, and then throwing out some unrealistic thing that has nothing to do with the universe or the Bible or whatever, you know, is there's no grace for, for fantasies anyway. They're not, God always intended to have a people for his own possession. A nation within the nation, a city set on the hill of the city. A mountain, of the, the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to raise up in the middle of all the mountains and be the chief of the mountains. Read Isaiah 2 and Micah 4. Well, I guess I'm going to stop there. And-